It's Saturday, one more day till we get some oasis and refuge at church as sojourners. But for now, it's 1689 Saturday. Sixteen eighty nine Saturday, yeah. All right. So hey, I started this thing off, kind of uh, thinking about some stuff on on Tuesday. Um, that would be this week, so a few episodes back. Um, and I kind of mentioned an argument that I thought well summed up some of the problem with um, a Presbyterian, and when I say Presbyterian, I mean really Reformed, um, Pater Baptist argument. Um, in the best possible way, I think I was. Uh, I, I like that argument. You know, you get you get all sorts of uh, versions of the argument. Uh, if we're if we're opening it up to Pado Baptists, of course, you've got everything from Roman Catholicism uh, through Reformation, and so obviously you want to limit that somewhat. Just a helpful code for me there is is Presbyterian, in that you're not going to find a, a Roman Catholic Presbyterian. Um, but it's also true that the Reformed in general, um, you know, just the, the various different denominations, the Dutch Reformed, uh, all sort of are in the same camp here. And um, there is a difference <clears throat> in general um, that, that might be worth uh, keeping in mind. Um, where the Scottish Presbyterian... Uh, kind of thing took a life of its own um, and the consonants and the Reformation there sort of, you know, deviated from the Puritan um, theology. You did have different nuances of the debate and uh, different emphases that came out. Um, for example, you know, towards, especially like by the time I'm thinking as Puritanism kind of moved on and you got to guys like Jonathan Edwards, for example. I know that a lot of uh, reform folk don't like Jonathan Edwards because, you know, he had so weakened their covenantal argument um, that it all, and, and even John Owen. Now that I'm thinking about it, uh, although they, they themselves were were Pentecostals, they uh, were frowned upon by the community because they had weakened the argument um, in the eyes of that community. And all they did was really just say, they emphasized the need for faith. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Baptist, that's why we like Owen and uh, Edwards is good too. You know, they just, um, they just said, hey guys, uh, you know, we can't just say that our covenant kids are like in the covenant full on, you know, without any need for, for having them uh, later profess faith. Now, no, no one is saying that ultimately, but, but it, it just, um, the implications were strong enough for, for those guys to be able to pick up on. Whereas you had the more, um, you know, objective covenant status thing highlighted in the continent and Dutch Reformed theology where it's just, hey, you've got your, your presumed regenerate um, at some level. And, um, and so obviously that's fraught with problems. I, I come from South Africa, and um, I, I just know how that sort of hits the culture. Dutch Reformed theology, you know, was the backbone of South Africa and led to all the problems in many ways, but um, also, you know, was, was did a lot of good. But uh, what I was saying is that, um, you know, you know that, um, 
you can see the way, and I'm just trying to think of another place that this would work itself out, but I suppose the States would be the, the other example here in Christian culture and Reformed culture. Anyone that's been in a Reformed church should feel this, I suppose. It starts to work itself out into the fabric of the culture in that uh, less emphasis is placed on faith and and uh, yourself having to trust in Jesus. And uh, to the point that, you know, I know, you know, if you take that Kuyperian Dutch reform model. I mean, basically, you're doing evangelism when you get into politics. A nation is considered redeemed when it has Christian laws. Um, it's almost like no reference to personal faith at all. So, it, to me, those are striking examples of the kind of way in which uh, Presbyterian theology or Reformed theology um, flattens the, the the story of Scripture to basically do a Israel 2.0 in the New Testament. And uh, the goal then looks very similar to the goal that uh, uh, that Israel had as a nation and as a theocracy, and um, and it sort of fails to take into account that things are now fulfilled and 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 no longer does the typology remains. It sort of leaves the crescendo out of the story. Now I know that I'm generalizing, and I know you know anyone that I'm talking to will have a hundred kickbacks. And I know also I don't want to be unfair in this that uh, even the worst case of Kuyperian Dutch Reformed theology or Puritan theology doesn't neglect the importance of the gospel and the need to um, believe the gospel. At the end of the day, they are reformed, um, but yeah, they they just the other elements of their theology tend to undermine this. That's what we're saying, and um, and so it's almost like you have to squeeze it out of them sometimes. Uh, which I don't know, I, I don't like, and I don't think is the emphasis of the New Testament at all. Um, so, you know, the reality is the culture starts to just change. There's a different kind of culture um, in that which places greater emphasis on the external than the internal. There's just something about that. And... Um, I think I've seen that bear out enough times experientially, but certainly it's it's enough to see that in the scripture for me. Um, all right. Well, anyways, that's kind of just uh, by way of introduction. Um, what I started to talk about, though, was this article um, that, you know, I think really summer did a good job in, in trying to reel in the best possible argument, the best of the various. There, there aren't there isn't an argument. There isn't a covenant theology that gets you to pay to baptism. It's many different theologies and nuances and covenant uh, covenant ideas and uh, they differ from one one group to the next so it would be a mistake to to think that um, you know there's one single kind of reformed theology in that regard um, but I think this guy did a good job uh, the guy I'm talking about was P Richard Flynn uh, again just go check out that that uh, episode if you if you want to um, just uh, just a good job in summarizing Murray and Klein and kind of moving forward with the whole thing. Now, um, I mentioned in that um, that episode how I think there's a sleight of hand going on with their theology, and um, and if you're not careful, you don't pick it up, and uh, that's why it has a sense of force. But um, I also mentioned that there's a, a linchpin in the argument. And um, I said I'd talk about that a little bit more. What I want to do now is just, even if you hadn't uh, listened to that episode, I don't want to make this too dependent on that, but um, I'm going to just, as a thing on its own, talk a little bit about the um, the linchpin of the Baptist argument. Now, I might come back to this in more detail, but I just for the sake of not overwhelming, I just want to kind of keep this fairly succinct. Um, but if you do have a Bible, it might help you just to turn to... Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. 
the very famous passage where Jeremiah um, uh, speaks of the new covenant, prophesies of the new covenant, and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And here it is, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, here's the thing. Um, that's a pretty clear text, and it's obviously, I mean, if you're a dispensationalist uh, on, on the hardcore variety, you believe that this is only to Israel, and, you know, there's another new covenant <laughs> that God uh, made with with the church, and oh my goodness, what a mess. Okay, so we reject all of that. Um, but on the other side of the spectrum, you've got, you know, the, the reform guys, that they, they have to look at this, and this is indicating a huge progression in terms of the way things are going to work publicly and theologically. Um, what Jeremiah is saying to these exiles who have failed under their um, covenant administration, they have just failed to keep the law, they've failed to uh, live according to the covenant, they've, um, for that reason, been handed over to this um, this kind of typological hell, I suppose you could say, in that they are now being taken out of the land and um, and Jeremiah is speaking to to the the exiles and and um, allowing them to understand that not all hope is lost in that uh, God's not going to do the same thing again. You know, He's not going to make uh, Israel 2.0 and just try it all again, like almost like a dispensational scheme where you just hey, you failed the test this time. Don't worry, we'll come up with another test and hopefully you do better next time. That's that's not the idea at all. The whole big thing here is to go, hey, you have failed 100 uh, percent. Now you see that you're in the same boat as Adam, the Mosaic administration, of course, being a echo of of the covenant that God made with Adam. So, you know, it's failed. Uh, if you now know you are no better than Adam. And uh, and as Adam was brought under that guilt, so are you. But not all hope is lost. Why? Because behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it's not going to be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. Now, that's obviously um, coming out of Egypt. He's talking about the covenant that they broke. It's not talking about the Abrahamic covenant um, necessarily, but the Mosaic administration. And so that's probably an important distinction to make. Cause, and, and a lot of um, fair, I think it's fair enough that a lot of um, um, reformed authors will point that out and go, hey, well, you know, just keep in mind that he's not saying the new covenant is utterly uh, in, in utter discontinuity from that which has gone before. The thing it's not going to be like is the typological or the, the echo, at least, of, of the, the Adamic covenant of works. That's not what it's going to be like. It's going to be a covenant of grace like the one before, as, as uh, we've already said Paul has uh, argued in Galatians 3. It's going to be a new covenant, not new in the sense that it's completely unheard of in terms of grace, but new in the sense that even those, uh, well, certainly different to the Mosaic covenant, it'll be in antithesis to it. It'll be a covenant of grace, not a covenant of works. 
But even in, in newness to the Abrahamic covenant, we see here in the second part of the passage, um, you know, from like 33 onwards, that it will be, there won't be an external typological dimension to it as there was even in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, that administration of grace. Um, and so that's, that's usually important. Uh, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This verse 33, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Uh, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, they shall all know me. Right now, here's the thing. Um, no one is saying that, uh, people in the Old Testament were not saved and did not have this experience of the law written on their heart. I mean, that's really essentially talking about salvation. And we're saying that that's happened all the way from Adam through the administration of the covenant of grace. So that's not the new part yet. The new part is that there's no one in the covenant who doesn't have this thing happen to them. That's the new part. There'll be no... See, you know, certainly when you're talking about the Mosaic administration... They had this law written on some of their hearts, those who had trusted in uh, God and trusted in His redemption and the Messiah to come. Um, and they also had, as part of that administration, an external codification, so to speak, of the law uh, for those, you know, as a nation to look upon and to uh, submit to. Now, that's not, you know, you reverse that a little bit uh, back. Um, while the external uh, codification of that law had not yet been given at Sinai, it's still true that obviously in in, um, Abraham you had uh, a whole lot of children. Uh, Only some of them, we know now in hindsight, uh, could even be conceived to be truly uh, uh, those who were saved and have the the law written on their heart. Yet we know that uh, those of uh, of direct Abrahamic lineage would receive something of the blessing of the covenant promise uh, despite that lack of regeneration. So there was still an external reality as God was through, um, you know, their progeny bringing out uh, a, a nation, a seed. Hence, uh, you know, the sign falling on the male reproductory organ for crying out loud. You know, it's it's all very, very intentional. Um, and that part is going to get stripped away. So it's not new that we're just going to receive grace now for the first time in the new covenant, but it's like he's saying that's all that there will be. There'll be no, there'll be no external um, sense of a covenant community. Uh, to know the Lord is to be in this new covenant. They're one and the same thing. To have the law written internally is to be in the new covenant, uh, which is uh, what is coming. It's the fullest expression of the covenant of grace, as is commonly said, and I think that's right. So, um, you know, when you talk about the covenant sign, as we said the other day, you know, mediating either blessing or wrath, (laughs) it's just like it works for the Abrahamic covenant. It does not work for the coming new covenant. All right. And so this is really the linchpin of the whole. I mean, I'll be honest with you. This is why I'm Baptist. Take this text away. I don't know. I'd probably I'd probably go Presbyterian to be honest with you. Uh, this is what holds me, and I don't think there. I, look, I would love to hear a decent argument against this, but I'll give you the best one I've ever heard. Um, and this is um, who who did I hear this from? I mean, I, this is definitely a mainstream argument. I've heard it from a few different people since. It hasn't always been the case, though. 
And uh, it, it, it's just kind of interesting to me that, you know, e- even in acknowledging that there is a good argument that now supports a pedo-baptist view in light of this passage, um, what it has to do is, is undermine the previous arguments to get there. And so it has to form a whole new kind of covenant theology. But um, here's the argument. They, um, they look at this text and they go, yes, absolutely right, guys. We believe that, you know, the new covenant year will only include those who know the Lord 100%, except that's talking about when Jesus comes back again. That's not talking about when he came for the first time and inaugurated the New Testament. So up until the point that Jesus comes back again, we're to administer the covenant in exactly the same way as the old Jerusalem, as if nothing has changed. Um, so how do we? How does the church look? Well, let's take our prompt from Abrahamic covenants and the, the administration there. You and your children, external dimension. Uh, you know, all, all, let's focus on redeeming the nation and all sorts. Uh, let's take our cues in the worst points from uh, from the Mosaic covenant and, and the theocracy. Nothing's changed until Jesus comes again. Then this hope will be fulfilled. At some level, I could just stop there and go, you know what, you're going to buy that or you're not. But there is a deeper answer and actually a, an unassailable answer from my, I mean, I'll never be moved on this. I know this because I, I feel too deeply about it. Um, if you look at the New Testament, the thing about the eschatology of the New Testament, you can't, I don't think you can actually understand what the New Testament is saying until you get this concept. Um, there is, and in fact, this is the very name of the podcast, right? The overlap of the ages, the two age idea. Um, there is uh a, a, what, what is often called the already, not yet, hermeneutic or eschatology of the New Testament. And basically the idea is that although the end hasn't been consummated, it has been inaugurated. And at the inaugurate, uh, at the first coming of Christ, when the kingdom was inaugurated, when the new covenant was inaugurated, um, we are already uh, uh, experiencing... Um, an inbreaking of that thing that is to come. It's already, but it's not yet. So in other words, we live in this very deep tension right now where, um, where everything is fulfilled except for the consummation. Now, I hate the way, and I think in that article, what they often... The reform guys often come back and say, "Well, what are you saying? Like, we don't have bodies, and then you know, are you are you jumping into over-realized eschatology?" And of course, we're not. Um, no one is in any way suggesting that externality in the body and life and matter is not important. We're just saying that how do we, how are we to administer Christ's inaugurated church, uh, his you know his inaugurated kingdom? How do, in the church now? How does that look? Do we, do we look at the heavenly Jerusalem to administer that or the earthly Jerusalem? The shadows and the types or the thing that is fulfilled? And so, well, that doesn't mean we're going to, you know, just, um, you know, pretend we're in heaven already, of course. It means that surely, at very minimum, we now administer the church by first believing uh, before entering in, at least by way of a credible profession. No one, and then, you know, the, the other thing that just kills me is when they say, you know, well, you don't know. You don't know that, um, that um, you know, the people in your congregation is, uh, are saved. That's true. But they've all made a credible profession if they're members. And that's the point. Uh, no one's looking into anyone's heart. Overrealized eschatology is not even close, close to being on the table. Um, it's just a matter of, of uh, asking people to 
credibly profess their faith before uh, administering the the covenant sign. I mean, that's it, right? And um, and just because you someone might have duped you, it doesn't mean then you have license to just take your water pistol and start just you know just sprinkling everything around you. Um, irregardless of their profession of faith. I mean, that's just a, a total leap in logic. So um, anyways, bottom line is like they, they look at Jeremiah and they go, you know what? I mean, some of the other arguments are just, oh, my goodness, I don't even go there. Like this is not a new covenant, but a renewed covenant. And um, I just think, I mean, that's just been exegetically dismantled. So I'm not even even going to go there. <clears throat> I'd be embarrassed to hold that view. But um uh, I think it is much more plausible and much more sophisticated argument to say, okay, well, let, guys, let's not forget, Jeremiah is talking about the consummation uh, as the final phase of, of the new covenant rather than the inauguration or the commencement. And I take the point that there are these three phases that we need to be careful with, uh, not everything, and we will very quickly fall into an overrealized uh, eschatology if we just jump straight into thinking that everything has been consummated. Of course, half of the New Testament goes in that direction, and Paul is waging against that. We see that problem over and over again in church history as well. So it is a valid concern, um, but it's just, I think you would have to, in order to have that argument stand, you would have to sacrifice the already, not yet, hermeneutic of the New Testament, because you basically have to say that that the administration of the covenant of grace can be inaugurated without having yet been, uh, without having received that which is of the not yet in terms of its uh, uh, efficacy, which of course is is just so out of whack with um, with the New Testament. So I'm not willing to let that that basic hermeneutic go. And uh, I, you know, usually, I mean, I'd, I'd imagine that would be a struggle for any. I mean, most people would believe in the idea of an already not yet hermeneutic. I think it's only the most radical dispensationalists who reject that now. It's such a well-established hermeneutic, and um, and so I, I don't think that argument works because it can't work um, because the New Testament's own hermeneutic forbids it. Um, so back to where we started then, uh, the whole thing is that Jeremiah is saying in time, uh, you know, there is going to come a remnant who will make up the fullness of the people of God. They won't be, they won't, um, there won't be a rehash of, of earthly Jerusalem in a new covenant administration. We're not going to try and do the, the whole, uh, city building thing again. Now we wait for the, the, the builder to come and uh, he'll build spiritually first uh, in and through his church uh, through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments and um, and as the kingdom through the church and its proclamation of the gospel commences uh, finally finally that which is true on earth will be true in heaven um, and when Jesus does come and ba- uh, come back again and there uh, those who knew the Lord um, uh, on the earth, those who had professed faith and um, those who, obviously every person himself knows whether he was trying to dupe someone else, but those who had professed faith um, and and therefore been assured of the promises will receive them in fullness. So I'm going to leave it at that. And uh, hopefully that's a good encouragement to you, if nothing else. Um, but hopefully it also gets you thinking about this very important linchpin argument for Reformed Baptist theology and uh, and uh, I, it's it is a reformed Baptist thing, because um, obviously no one, 
as a Reformed Baptist guy, you care about the covenant, you care about baptism. This is where the two intersect most profoundly. So obviously there's tons more to say on that. Uh, but hopefully, again, that gets you some. Uh, that gives you something to think about. Uh, bless you guys. That's sixteen eighty nine Saturday, and go to church. Right? Don't don't even pretend that you care about sixteen eighty nine anything, or two age sojourning anything, unless you you get get to church tomorrow, because that is the action of the Christian life right there. Uh, we just we're 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 hanging out for that. We're waiting for uh, the, that that crystal fountain. That, that Christ would open to us through His Word and through uh, the sacraments and through fellowship with God's people. It's the oasis after a hard week of sojourn. So get there and uh, find yourself a church and um, get stuck in. Uh, Again, bless you guys. (laughs) 